Please turn with you now to our sermon text in Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with tin curtains of fine woven linen and blue purple, scarlet red, with artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits, and every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the selvage of one set. And likewise you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops, and you shall make in the one curtain. And fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains together with the clasps, so that it may be one tabernacle. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make eleven curtains. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits. And the eleven curtains shall all have the same measurements. And you shall couple five curtains by themselves and five curtains by themselves, and you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set. And you shall make fifty bronze clasps. Put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle, and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and on that side to cover it. You shall also make a covering of ramskins dyed red for the tent, and a covering of badger skins above that. And for the tabernacle you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle, And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards on the south side. You shall make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be twenty boards, and there are forty sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the far side of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six boards, and you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom, They shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold, make their rings of gold as holders for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim, 
You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. The hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we who have already had our eyes adjusted to the very brilliant light of Jesus Christ and the gospel, the things of the New Testament, the new covenant that are given to us, Lord, we are somewhat unaccustomed then to the dimmer things, the types and shadows that are given to us in the Old Testament. But Lord, this is your word. It is for our good. It shall accomplish its good purpose in your people. And Lord, there are things in here that help us to understand Christ more than we do. And Lord, principally among them, we consider this issue of the veil. And we pray, Lord, that you'd make these things clear to us and that you grant us spiritual understanding in this simple yet profound aspect of typology. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight we come to our second sermon on the tabernacle. And last time we considered the instructions that God gave to Moses regarding the tabernacle. It was a place to be for his covenant, the covenant people to meet with their God. They would find mercy and beauty and God himself. A place made, as I said, by willing hearts according to God's design. And we don't really move away from that. We only focus now on one particular aspect of the tabernacle, which is the veil. It was to be, in the words of our text, a means of separation between the holy and the unholy, or rather between the holy and the most holy. Now, before we go any further, again, this has to take at least the form of a little bit of instruction, a little bit of Sunday school, perhaps, because we don't, we're not all familiar with the, the tabernacle. And I'm mindful that even as we're reading it, you may not have been able to follow at every point. At every point. But if you're in your mind or even on your paper, you can sketch out a kind of outer rectangle, which has to do with the, the whole, t- um, the, the, the larger tabernacle. And outside in that, that outer courtyard, there's going to be the bronze laver and the altar burnt offerings. So that's, that's in the outer courtyard. And then an inner rectangle divided in half. And there's the, the holy place is the outer portion of that inner part where you find the altar of incense, the golden lampstand, and the showbread table, those three things. And then on the far western part, so maybe in our, our sketch, maybe it's over here. So here's the, here's the outer tabernacle, and here's the holy place, and then here is the most holy here, and there we find the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, which are actually placed one on top of the other. Now, we said last time that the tabernacle was a place to find communion with God. It's a provision for the holy God to meet with his sinful people. And so it is a place of 
of communion and of, of unity, but it's also a place of separation. And that's seen very much in the fact that there are those veil not just one veil, actually, but two. There's a veil separating the outer court from the holy place, and also a veil separating the holy place from the most holy place. And of course, this was necessary in this situation of the ceremonial laws being pictured and, and all the transactions that are necessary to get there. You think of the flow of unholy people outside of the tabernacle as whole, as a, uh, completely. They, they come in. And, and there's an altar there where burnt offering can be sacrificed on their behalf because they're sinners. And then they can be washed with the bronze laver. And then they're granted admission into the holy place, only if they're a priest, right? So the priest then could come and partake of the showbread by the light of the golden lampstand inside that holy place. But then only the high priest could go into the next part, at certain times into the Holy of Holies to stand before the mercy seat that was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so the veil had the purpose of keeping people out, and that was necessary again in this situation as, as God had his particular location in that place of the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat by which this is the system that God's people have access to mercy through the high priest. Now, like everything else in the ceremony law, we have something to learn here about Jesus Christ and his work. Now, like other things, we can skip and find, we can find out what these things mean in the book of Hebrews. But I wonder, before we do that, if you've ever considered the significance of the veil being torn. Any of you who have been through Christianity Explored know that that is a significant moment as we consider that veil that was as thick as a, a, a handbreadth. A handbreadth thick was torn from top to bottom at the death of Christ. And I wonder if you considered exactly what was being demonstrated in these things. The, the way into the Holy of Holies has been, has been opened. And the question is, through what means has it been opened? Well, as Hebrews is going to tell us, it's because the veil was pointing us to Christ himself and his flesh and that he was torn, not by man, but by God himself. Torn in order, the way through his sacrifice might be made open into that holy of holies. Well, the sermon tonight is the veil of the tabernacle. And three fairly brief points. One tabernacle, separated by a veil, and the veil is Christ. One tabernacle, separated by a veil, the veil is Christ. So the first point is just to say this was to be one tabernacle. We've mentioned these divisions, but let's not forget that in all of our thinking about God's design, there is always unity and diversity. It reflects God's own nature as a triune God. He is one God, simple, divine God, but yet he is in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll read in verse 1, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Those three colors, by the way, blue, purple, and scarlet. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. And just again, uh, we could make a point about the Trinitarian beauty of that threefold color being woven. But we could also just make the general point again that it was going to be beautiful. It was designed to be beautiful as well as functional. 
And in verse 30, it says, And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. Because in this design, which in various ways was to prefigure Christ and was to, to function as a, as a typological place of meeting as well as a functional place of meeting, it was essential that it was made precisely in accordance with God's design. So this is, again, pointing us to regulated worship. And that all of our worship of God has got to be in accordance with his command. But now getting to the point of the tabernacle, or sorry, to the veil, and the fact that this veil was part of a larger tabernacle that was unified, it says in verse 5, Fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of that curtain, which is on the edge of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. So there is a means of joining all these several parts together. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. And that's important. Because one thing that we know in all of these, this consideration both of the tabernacle and of the temple is that the ultimate fulfillment of these things is not just Christ on the one hand, but also the church on the other. And so that what Christ is building right now is a church and it's made up of many different individuals. But yet we are being built together, we've been coupled together and unified to our common head. So it's completely uh, understandable and, and, and essential to this, this notion that even as we are being built up as, as stones to the living temple, lively stones is the way it's put in the New Testament, that you would take different things, different links of curtain to be coupled together and unified so that it may become one tabernacle. So if you think about that tabernacle and you'd, you'd, they take it apart, just like we do in the military, you, you have these, these tents and these command centers and all the parts are sitting out and just looks like a, a, a hopelessly discombobulated uh, affair. But they're all designed to fit together perfectly. And you go about the work and, and they're all, the, all the parts are numbered and there's a, a design and you put this thing together and it, it's all together. Now instead of a hundred different parts, it's one unified uh, thing And so it was with God's tabernacle. So it was fundamentally one unified tabernacle. That was the only point I wanted to make there. But secondly, it is separated by a veil. It was separated by a veil. And I'll start reading again in verse 31. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It will be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang upon it the four pillars of acacia wood, overlaid with gold. The hook shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. There's a division. There's a separation. And friends, again, why is there a division and separation? It's the whole point of this tabernacle was to be a place where God would dwell with his people. Why does there need to be a separation? Because, friends, their sin had not been dealt with. And in fact, the only way, even in this this ceremonial system, there is provision for their sin to be dealt with and there must be a separation to keep the unclean out. In fact, to keep anyone except for the the high priest. And that's a whole separate... It's procedure there for the high priest to come into the Holy of Holies, in which he 
puts on all of this garb and he is ceremonially cleansed in so many ways and there's so many sacrifices involved in order that he might then come in. And that is a provision to keep out unholy people from the presence of the living God lest they be killed. As we know was the case in the temple as well. So in this unified tabernacle which was precisely there in order to be a meeting place between God and men Yet there was a divider, a separation. Because in all of these things, all of this blood of, of sheep and goats and cows and birds, and all this pouring out of wine and of oil and of salt and all the other substances that could be found, none of that actually was the real and complete solution for their sin. And they remained sinners. And the way, therefore, into the, the Holy of Holies was not yet made. And so in all these things, there must be an element that is provisional. There must be a way that points beyond itself to Christ. And one imagines, if we were there, and of course, there's very little chance any one of us would be the high priest. There's only one at any time. But all the rest of us would wonder about that way into the most holy. And we would be very conscious that that privilege was not given to us. It was reserved for one who would act on behalf of the people. And maybe, just maybe, we would wonder and wish that someday that way would be opened into the dwelling place of God, into that mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. So the essential function of the veil was to separate. And as I say, it was very thick. But let me say also, before we leave it, that there was once a veil. It wasn't this veil that was made for this particular original tabernacle, but later in time, there was a veil made, and God knew that the, the function of that veil was momentarily to separate, but it was made in order that it might be torn. There was a veil made at great price that was installed into the latter temple. Its whole purpose one day was to be torn in two so that the function would no longer happen. It would no longer function as a separation between God's people and God himself. So there was a one tabernacle separated by a veil. But thirdly, we see that the veil is Christ. So we need to turn now to the, old, the, the New Testament to consider all the things that are said about this veil. And as I say, of course, the veil is later remade. And the veil of the temple performing the very same ceremonial and typological function. So whatever is said of the veil applies to both out of the tabernacle and of the temple. And we come to consider that tearing of the veil. It's mentioned in the Gospels in Matthew 27:50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil, the first thing that is mentioned of all the manifestations of, of this, this supremely significant event, the very first thing that is mentioned is, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split and other things were there too. People, the, some of the saints came out of their graves. There are many such manifestations. But the very first thing that happens is the, the veil of the temple being torn in two. Likewise in Mark, as we read in Mark 15, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, just so that no one could possibly imagine that this was a work of man. Again, in the temple, it was tall enough in the tabernacle, but way taller than that in the temple, and no one could possibly have done it. They couldn't have done it anyways, because as I said, it was this thick. No man could possibly have torn it, but God himself did. No man would dare to tear it, 
but only God could and did because its function was now complete. Its function of keeping out uh, people because the way into the Holy of Holies was not yet open was done in the death of Christ. His sacrifice was complete. It was sufficient. He said, what did he say? Tetelestai. It is finished. His sacrifice for sin, the thing that could never be done year by year, and it doesn't matter how many times there was a day of atonement, it doesn't matter how many times all those little aspects of the temple, which by the way were co- what we saw in the tabernacle, were all copied and amplified in the temple, and that whole system, blood, 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 of, of animals dying and all the rest of those things could never once atone for even a single sin. Now, there Christ died for his people, and it was sufficient. It was enough. And we don't need to know anything more. We don't even need to have to come to the resurrection of Christ to know that it was complete and sufficient and accepted because God tears that veil in two. What a marvelous thing. We never wonder whether the blood of Christ is sufficient or not. Wouldn't it have been terrible for, the, for God to have kept the, the temple going and, and allowed the, the veil to remain intact? I don't, I, 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 we're not told. I wish I knew exactly what the, the priests did. You know, they're there patching it up and sewing it together or something. But that wasn't God. Wouldn't it have been terrible, though, had he kept all that system intact just in case? Maybe Christ's blood wasn't sufficient in some case or another. It was only 99% done. Friends, it wasn't that way. Utterly torn, utterly made worthless, because it was utterly unnecessary. Christ was that way in. That's the way it's explained in Hebrews 9. And I'll read it to you now. I probably could have read it um, earlier, but I'll just read the whole explanation in Hebrews chapter 9. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the, the earthly sanctuary, For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So that's the the, the holy place that I mentioned. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, so that even, even the, uh, the apostle there writing in Hebrews, we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had thus been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And let me just say again, committed in ignorance. Why? Because there was no provision for sins that were committed with a high hand, any intentional sin. Now, beloved, uh, I, I barely even get to thinking about the sins that I commit in ignorance because I have so many that I commit well knowing what I'm doing. And unfortunately, that's the case of all God's people. And just a reminder again that not one of God's people in the Old Testament was ever saved by the ceremonial law because it was fundamentally incompetent to do that. Okay, All of it was to point us to Christ. But here's the explanation in verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle 
was standing. Because in all the things that the tabernacle portrayed, it also was, was hiding some things. It, it, it spoke of things that were there, provision. And it pointed beyond itself to Christ, but it made it clear that Christ had not yet come. And that Christ had not yet died. And that his sacrifice had not yet opened that way. And so in Hebrews 9 tells us astonishingly, and as I came to this, these verses anew, I was struck by the power of them. Hebrews 10:19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The veil that is his flesh. Beloved, we have boldness to do what the, even the high priest could only do once a year, could only do as the proper ceremony and sacrifices were done. There had to be enough animals to give their life, even for that to happen once a year. But we have boldness. Have we heard that word before? We have boldness to do many things, beloved. But of all of them, the supreme thing is that we have boldness to enter into that holiest of holies, to the dwelling place of God spiritually, through his word and through his sacraments, and particularly through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have boldness to do that. Why? Because the wrath of God is not going to break out against us for doing it. We can be in the presence of the living God. And when we die, we know that we will go directly into that presence of God. And we not fear doing so. Because the blood of Jesus Christ is enough. You see, there was a veil that was made to be torn. The veil of Christ's flesh. As the Son of God took on human flesh, there was a veil being made. And as he grew up, as a child, as a boy, grew up to be a man, there was a veil that was woven together. And that veil was there precisely in order to be torn. So that you and I could walk in with boldness into the Holy of Holies. And friends, if we've been given that kind of provision, that kind of precious provision, and how foolish and sad it would be for us not to, with all of our hearts, receive this in faith and enter right in to the place that he has made open for us. So how should we apply these things, this veil of the temple? Well, we should again worship God in Christ. This is one part of the sermon, just one part. Have you grown in your estimation of Christ and his work for you? I hope you have. And let's worship him a little bit more. Let's love him a little bit more. With that little bit of extra knowledge that we have, we should, we should love him a little bit more. And we should enjoy him and we should worship him just a little bit more. And it's wonderful that we don't have these things. Look, the, temp- the tabernacle was, was beautiful. The temple even more so. But we have the supreme thing in Christ himself. And if there is anyone who lacks joy, it's because you are not fully cognizant this moment of all that you've been given in Christ. And I can tell you it's not the will of God that you're not joyful. I can tell you it's not the will of God that's keeping you outside. And if there is anyone who is still outside of that temple, not yet entered in through Christ, that invitation is very open, sincerely open to you to walk in through that, that torn flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ through the shed blood that makes you able, the Holy Spirit that makes you willing to come in to that holy place.
believe and, and worship Christ, worship God in Christ. Second, I would say conversely or ask the question, is there any role for separation at all? And the answer is yes. We should be separate from the world. Right? There is yet a separation that remains between the temple of God that is being built without hands, built by the power of the Holy Spirit, built up of through Christ ahead, but of all of us as lively stones being built up into this wonderful uh, work. He's, he's the supreme architect. This is his building project. It costs a lot more than what it will cost to, to redo all saints. And he's been working on it for an awful long time. It's not over budget. It's not over time. It's precisely in accordance with his will. And the, the building materials are us. And he makes us perfectly fit together. And he makes us then to have perfect, uninterrupted communion with one another. And we should have that. We must have that. But there's yet a separation between ourselves and the world. And we must remember that. God has said, come out of her, speaking of Babylon, the whore Babylon, my people. Because he has made us to be holy, because he has set us apart from our ordinary situation in the world, he wants us to be precious and set apart for his holy tasks. That's the way the priesthood was in the Old Testament. But there is no priesthood in the New Testament. Yes, there's elders and ministers and deacons. We have our office and we have our roles. But the reality is that we all are granted this wonderful presence, this, or this wonderful communion with God and, and our, our entrance to him. But on the flip side of that, we should maintain our distinctiveness and our separation from the world. We should be salt and light. And the salt doesn't work if we don't maintain our saltiness. And the light doesn't work if it's hidden. So be separate from the world. Thirdly, we should be beautiful on the inside. This is Matthew Henry's point. I don't know if you thought of it. It's, it's hard to keep track maybe of all those things. But the, the, the things that were least beautiful were the things, the external coverings of all this. The animal skins that actually served as a roof and the external curtains of the tabernacle were not all that pretty, actually. And the most, more precious and beautiful things were here, and then the most precious and beautiful things were at the, the utter inside of that. Much like, indeed, a Swiss watch, where they can sometimes be rather plain on the outside. But if you take them apart, they actually have gold and rubies on the inner thing. It's, yes, rubies are used as lubricant uh, of the gears of a Swiss watch, and very often the whole thing is encased in gold. Whereas it might just be stainless steel on the outside. Well, this happens in Calvin's Geneva, doesn't it? And it's the, the point, the larger point I'd make about the tabernacle is a spiritual point that we make about ourselves, which we should, be, we should strive to be beautiful on the inside. Right? Matthew Henry says this, that the outside of the tabernacle was coarse and rough. The beauty of it was in the inner curtains. Those in whom God dwells must labor to be better than they seem to be. Hypocrites put the best side outwards, like whited sepulchers, but the king's daughter is all glorious within. All right? Hypocrites want to look good on the outside, look better than what they really are on the inside. But God's people should be better in reality and what they really are on the inside sometimes than what is obvious on the outside. And along with that goes the forbearance and patience in this imperfect world. Now, in the new heavens and the new earth, all that gold is through and through. And every aspect of us through and through will be perfect, and that will be seen, and there will be no hindrance whatsoever. But in this time, sometimes we have to live in charity and deal with each other in patience, 
Sometimes the good intentions of our hearts are not always reflected in the way that we speak to one another. Sometimes we give it offense that we don't really mean to do. Sometimes our countenances don't always look the way that they really are in the inside. I know that I'm guilty of this myself. But friends, we should therefore strive both to be beautiful on the inside and in charity to assume the same is the true of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the tabernacle, and we're thankful for that veil, a veil which served to keep God's people out, but which served to point beyond itself to the Lord Jesus Christ, in which a veil was made for him, made to be rent in two, rent by God and not man ultimately. And Lord, we're thankful that through his shed blood, through his broken body, Through his work of sacrifice on the cross, the way into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, the mercy seat that we receive, mercy of God, has been made open. And Lord, we're grateful for it. We're grateful, Lord, that no new um, separation has been erected, but only, Lord, that we are being built up into this ultimate and final temple and the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem where there is no temple, but that the Lord himself lives with us and reigns with us in perfect unity and joy. Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would worship Christ anew, even considering this one aspect of his his person and work. We ourselves, or we are not separate from Christ, we are not separate from the presence of God, that we would be separate from the world and reflect the holiness and the set-apartness that you'd have us to be. And that, Lord, in your goodness, you would make us to be even like the tabernacle, whatever our exterior might be. And we pray, Lord, it would more and more reflect the truth inside, but particularly that we would strive to be beautiful on the inside as the work of of God's Holy Spirit does its sanctification in us and makes us to be fit for your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.